name of Jesus. Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer the question in your own head. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God's for me, who can be against me? Well, I mean, plenty of people, of course, can be against you. But they would be fools. If God, the creator of the universe, if God who still rules the universe and guides it by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, if God who led the people of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground, if God who slaughters his enemies with angel armies, if God who breathed breath into the nostrils of Adam and brought life to this world, if that God is on your side, that then who can be against you? And then if he is on your side, will that make any difference at all? If this God has come to you, if this God has baptized you, breathed life into you, if this God has taken you out of death and brought you into life, if this God has fed you with word and sacrament, with all of this, then who can be against you? Now, how you answer that question, that's like, those are your idols. Those are your false gods, all right? For you, you are more than conquerors. Through Jesus Christ, who loves you, and nothing will separate you from his love, nothing. Anyone or anything that stands against you, against the love of God and Jesus Christ, will fall. And sometimes that means things like pagan kings who want to chop your head off, as happened to St. James the Greater, uh, who we're celebrating today. Sometimes that does mean things like that. Persecutions, they happen all the time. Sometimes, though... The things that are against you are more mundane things, things like clocks, schedules. So I was in church two weeks ago on a family trip, and I'm not just telling you this so that you can know that I go to church on vacation um, when I'm not getting paid to go to church, but uh, I, I do go to church actually because I, I, I do believe this stuff, and um, it's why I became a pastor, funny enough. But uh, the pastor at this church that we were at two weeks ago, he preached this sermon in which he was talking about the length of the Sunday morning divine service. And it was abundantly clear that someone had advised him, to put it lightly, that the services were going a little bit too long. All right. Now, by the way, I'm not, I'm not like passively, aggressively talking about anyone here at all. This has been a great blessing. I've never had anyone at this church say, Pastor, we got to cut the time of church down shorter. All right. So I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about them, those, uh, those people in, in Wisconsin. But, and I will admit, though, that when we sat down in the pew there that morning and uh, we look at what the hymns are going to be for that day, and one of the hymns was 
These are the Holy Ten Commands. Now, this is a hymn by Martin Luther on the Ten Commandments. So, most of our hymns have like four, five, six verses. I mean, the ones you really like have three. But um, how many stanzas, how many verses would a hymn on the Ten Commandments have? I mean, take a wild guess. The answer, some of you know already, is 12. Okay, because 10 isn't enough. We want to put two extra verses in there. So uh, we sit down and I say, oh man, we are singing. These are the 10 holy commands. And what did I think? How are we ever going to get through this hymn? They are all going to get up and leave, aren't they? Because it is just too long. How long is it going to take to sing this hymn? The answer, by the way, is four minutes, 53 seconds. And then we were not run off by the long hymns. And we went back the next Sunday, too, which was last Sunday. You know, I was thinking maybe that was an anomaly. No, there was another one in that service, too. And this one, this one had 10 verses, too. Now, what really is the difference, then, between a service that runs for 55 minutes versus one that runs for, like, an hour and 20 minutes? Have you not set aside your Sunday morning? If you haven't, then I would suggest that you do. I grew up in a church that uh, had to be restricted to a very strict hour for the service. No more, no less. Uh... Because there were like 19 services there. And if one of them went a little long, then you're going to have a log jam in the narthex and it's going to look like a gridlocked airport with a bunch of late arrivals and just chaos and pandemonium were going to erupt there. Which, by the way, that's how you know it's time to start another church when you like can't fit all the people in there. When Jesus called James, and when Jesus called his brother John, we heard about this a couple weeks ago. Was there any indication that he was calling them to a life of like a minor commitment? Just something extra to get in there on the side of what they were already doing. Was Jesus calling them to something that would just slightly inconvenience them? And then does Jesus kind of hem and haw over getting them to sign up to mow the lawn? Does Jesus then say, come follow me? But I don't want to take too much of your time here because I know you have other really important things to get back to. When you are confirmed in the church, which by the way is something that we just totally made up, we ask you if you're willing to die for the faith. And when you join this church, we ask you even if you're willing to die for this congregation. That's really interesting. Has the church given you something that's worth dying for? Or have we given you something that is simply a minor inconvenience, something that you can work around, something that you can even forget? 
ignore. Have we been raising our children and teaching them this? And if we raise our children to do things and to think certain things, well, guess what? We're doing that because we do things and think certain things that we just reinforce our own unbelief if we're teaching them to grow up as unbelievers. Are we teaching our children to think that this is all optional? That this is something that we can just stop going to if the service gets too long or if the service goes 15 minutes over when we think it should go or, God forbid, that pastor picks hymns that we don't really like all that much. Hmm. Is that the picture that Jesus paints of the church? His beloved bride? How many of you get married and want to have a sort of part-time marriage? Not going to work. Is Jesus just a part-time savior? Do we ignore Jesus if he gets to be, I don't know, too much? Does Jesus ignore you when you are too little? Come, follow me. Follow me. Be my disciple. When Jesus calls James and John and Peter, they left their boats behind and followed. And they followed him and they had no idea what they were getting into. I mean, how could they? And how could you? When my father and my mother brought me to the baptismal font in, at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Wyandotte, Michigan in 1983, how could they have known where the Lord would bring me? I mean, if they were writing it out, it, it wouldn't look like this. I mean, the good news is that the adventure has so far surpassed anyone's wildest expectations, I would say. Now, we're reading the book of Acts on Sunday morning Bible study at 11 o'clock uh, after this. You should all come uh, because it's awesome. But the book of Acts is a fascinating book in many regards. It's not like really anything else in the Bible. The book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then it follows Peter and Paul around the world as they preach the gospel. And the book of Acts is filled with all of these like, interesting characters and stories. And it's it's like, very well crafted. And then like, at the end of it, there's nothing that says the end. It just kind of ends. It leaves you hanging. St. Paul is there in Rome and it looks like things are going well. But of course, the story of the church does not end in, in Acts 28, 31. There's more. That story goes on and the history continues. Paul goes on to die for the name of Christ as James did earlier, as Stephen did, as many, many have. 
The signs and the wonders in the book of Acts continue, and the Lord's great works go on to this very day. The story of the church is not done. It starts all the way back when God speaks the world into existence, puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and it keeps going all the way to you. You are not an afterthought. You're not a footnote to the story of God's people and God's work. You are not just one little piece of the puzzle that if we lost, that it would be fine. No. God is for you, and nothing can be against you. Nothing. St. James the Greater, he's called Greater because he's older, not, uh, not like better, uh, by the way. But St. James is put to death by the sword on this day. King Herod then, he was struck down by an angel and eaten by worms. So we celebrate James today and even have uh, uh, a party after, afterwards today. How many Herod parties are you aware of happening on this day? Did James know when he was out there fishing? Did James know when, when Jesus approaches them, when Jesus calls him to follow him, did he know that this would happen? How could he? And so what will go for you? What is the story for you? You have been called to follow Jesus Christ from your baptism. When he spoke to you, when he claimed you as his own, and he wrote his name on your forehead. You've got all sorts of enemies that are going to assault you. They may even take your life, but they can't win against you. For the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is on your side. And nothing can defeat him. And so nothing can defeat you. And you're more than victorious warriors. You're more than conquerors. Nothing can be against you. So live like it. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.